This morning we are uh, beginning a new series uh, throughout the months of June and, and I think most of July through the book of Romans. Uh, we won't be reading the whole book, but we're focusing specifically on chapters 3 through 8. It's kind of the heart of Paul's uh, letter, the heart of his arguments in that. And if you aren't familiar, Romans was written by a man named the Apostle Paul. He actually wrote uh, roughly half of the New Testaments. And, and we have his letters that he wrote to churches, and that's all the different names that you see after the Gospels in the book of Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, all the shins. It's all in there. And, and he wrote those letters to churches, and, and he was doing it for a variety of reasons, but what we gather is the book of Romans, he was writing a letter ahead of himself before he was going to visit the churches in the city of Rome. And really, this is kind of the, the book of the Bible that really condenses down and, and looks at what do Christians believe at the, the heart of our faith? What are the key teachings that Christians are to hold to that we're to believe? And that's what we're going to see over the next handful of weeks is, is some of those key teachings that Paul focuses on in his letter to the Romans. And, and we kick it off with, with what I would say and what many other smarter people than me have said is that this is the central teaching of our faith. That what we read in Romans chapter 3 and what we heard in those verses from a few moments ago, this is the center of our faith that this teaching that we are going to reflect upon is at the center of what Christianity is all about. And if you get this wrong, if it gets clouded, if you throw it out, you, you run the risk of, of really kind of walking away from Christianity and, and the teaching of Jesus himself. And so what is this central teaching, this central belief? Really what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3, specifically verses 21 to 24, is that we have a free justification from God. We have a free justification from God, and that that is the center of our faith. So, so this morning what we'll do is we'll look at, like, why do we need that even, what, what exactly is it or what isn't it? And then really what the heart of the matter is. Why do we need it? Why is it so important? What is it? What isn't it? And then what's at the heart of the matter? So let's think about this for a minute. Why do we need this so-called free justification from God? Why do we need it? Well, first, let's kind of understand what that word justification is. Because even as I'm saying it, if you've grown up in church, you might be like, I think I know what it means but it's one of those churchy words that we hear all the time, and sometimes we don't really know what exactly we're talking about or what exactly it means. Paul, he uses the word justification and righteousness. Those two words he uses a lot, and really they're, they're one Greek word, one word in his original language of Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. The one word describes a right standing before God. That's really what justification and righteousness come down to, is it is a right standing, it is an, a, a status of approval, it is an acceptance, it's kind of a divine thumbs up. That that's what Paul is describing, is that that's what we need, is, a, is an acceptance, a, a, an approval, 
a welcome, a right standing before the God who made us. We all need it. That deep down in our hearts, we need this. Uh, Maybe a modern way to think about righteousness is thinking about it like a resume. Like, what do you do with a resume? It is a collection of, of your past experiences, of your key qualities, of the things you would bring to the team of that position. And what you do with a resume is you go to that that job, and you say, look at my resume, and look and approve it. See that I meet the standard, that I get your thumbs up, and you should hire me. That's having a righteousness. That's having a justification. It's having a kind of a a validating performance record. And the way religion has worked from the very beginning even to now is we go to God, and religious people say this, God, look at my resume. Look at what I've done. Look at the good things I've done, the bad things I've avoided. Look at all the things I've done for you and for other people. Look at my resume and approve me, accept me, validate me, welcome me, and we present it to God. That's how religious people do it. But, but Paul comes to us and says, don't be like those religious people. There's a new righteousness that's been revealed, that's been made known, and it's free. The justification, the approval that God gives is freely given, and you simply receive it through faith in Jesus, the one who was righteous, the one who was perfect, And and Paul says that that's the thing we need is to receive this approval from God not because of what we've done but because of what Christ has done. Kind of the way people typically say this is we are made right with God, we are saved by God by grace, that's the freely given, through faith. We are saved by grace through faith and that, Paul says, is at the center of our faith and we need it. You need it. Here's why we need it, is because we don't know how badly we try to justify ourselves by our own efforts. Every single one of us does it. And every single person who has a, who has a heartbeat, has a pulse, they do it too. We try to use our own efforts to justify ourselves before others, before God even. A couple examples that, that aren't religious, but are religious at the same time, and I think you'll see what I mean. There's a movie a number of years ago, Chariots of Fire. Maybe some of you guys have seen that. One of the main characters of it, who is a runner, who's training for the Olympics, he kind of shares his motivation for why he does what he does, why he's been training, why he's been working. He says, listen, I have 10 seconds to what? To justify my existence. What's he doing? He's looking to his performance, to his effort, to his own things, to make himself worthy, to prove to himself, to prove to everybody that he's justified. You you think about Sidney Pollack, who was a famous director a number of years ago. He passed away about 15 or so years ago. Renowned director, directed a, a bunch of movies, and there was an interview toward the end of his life as he was kind of declining in health and his family was trying to talk him out of doing more uh, films. And and this was what the interviewer said as they sat down with Sidney, said that Sidney Pollack says that although the grueling film movie-making process is wearing him down, he can't justify his existence if he stops. 
And Sydney went on to say, every time I finish another picture, I feel like I've earned my stay for another year or so. What's he doing? He's justifying himself, earning his own righteousness. There was a a writer who was struggling with his writing and books, and and no one was really wanting to read his stuff, and so he was struggling with that uh, internally because he was looking for that for approval, and, and he wrote in an article, he said that, I questioned my whole purpose in life, but then I said, I, I would look at my two little girls, and I would know that my existence is justified. Now, that may have just been his way of saying he loves his daughters a lot, but but really what he's trying to communicate as well is that, that as good of a thing as it is to be a parent, he was looking to his, his goodness as a parent. He was looking to them to justify his existence, which, fair warning to parents, if you want to mess up your kids, justify your existence by them. Put your hopes on them, and you will mess them up. That's what he was doing. I heard another one at the end of the first service. Someone came up to me and said, hey, I heard this too, Madonna, who many of you know. A number of years ago, she did an interview with the New York Times, and she said that, that one thing, that, that the reason she keeps going and keeps going on tours and making music is because when she plays a concert, she hears the roaring applause of the crowd. She, in her mind, in his or her words, saying, I feel approval, I feel justified. And then she is very honest and says that, It only lasts for a little while, though. And then I have the deep, dark sense of needing to be approved again, and I need need to perform again to get the applause. What is she doing? She's justifying herself. She's seeking a righteousness of her own. We all do it by our own efforts. Maybe you do it by your job. Maybe you do it with your family. Maybe you do it by by how people see you, but we all struggle with this. We all want our own efforts to get us right with others, but ultimately what we're doing is we're seeking the approval, the righteousness of God by our own efforts, and we will all fall short. You know this. You know that you fall short. One example to show you, imagine you had some sort of recording device like your cell phone. Um, Every time you put a moral demand on somebody, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, your phone recorded you and kept the log of it. And then when the day comes when you stand before God, and you will stand before God one day, he took that recording device and played back to you your own standards that you held everyone else to, and he hit play and said, how did you measure up to your own standards that you put on others? I think many of us, if not all of us, we can't even meet our own standards. Now imagine God giving you his standards. How are you doing with that? To be righteous in his eyes. We all fall short. We need this righteousness. And and Paul says, it's not about you performing. It's about the free gift that God has come, and he knows we can't justify ourselves. And so he comes, and he freely gives it through Jesus Christ. That is at the center of our faith. You have this free righteousness in Christ, and you need it. 
But, but, but what exactly is it? Let's still kind of peel back the onion. What exactly is this righteousness, this justification that God gives to us? And here's two things I want you to hold on to. On the one hand, this, this free justification Jesus gives, that he gives to you right now through faith. On the one hand, it is more than just forgiveness. And on the other hand, it is completely distinct from being morally good. This justification is more than just forgiveness, and on the other hand, it is distinct from being morally good. Here's what I mean by that. First, it is more than just forgiveness. I think many of us, we go through our lives and we think when it says that we are made righteous with God, that we're declared righteous, we have this free gift, this justification, what we automatically think is that means I'm forgiven. God forgives me, and he does, but it's so much more. Not only is it a removal of your sin, but he gives to you something. Jesus, when he tells a story about a father and his sons, many times we refer to it as the prodigal son story, tells a story, I think, that illustrates this truth, is that there's this father who is told by his younger son, uh, hey, dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me the inheritance. And shockingly, the father does it, makes a fool of himself as the son embarrasses him and brings shame upon the family. The father actually goes along with it and gives him the inheritance. And then the son, who is an idiot, (laughs) goes off and wastes all of it. And then there's a famine that comes into the land, and he's got nothing. He's got no friends, he's got no support system, and now he's got no money. And now everybody is is in hard times, so what he has to resort to is eating pig food. And he realizes in that moment, he's at rock bottom, like, I need to go back to my father's house. I need to go back. And he rehearses in his mind what he's going to say. I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my dad how sorry I am. I've realized how much of an idiot I am. And I'm sorry for abandoning him, for turning on him. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, hey, I will work for you. I will do whatever is needed to show you that I'm sorry, that I truly am repentant, and I will work for you so that I can have some sort of income, so that I can have something to live off of. And he rehearses that in his mind, and then he goes home. And, and as the story continues, the father has been waiting outside the house. Who knows for how long, but he's been waiting for his son. And when he sees his son a long ways off, what does the father do? He embarrasses himself again. And he runs to the son, which men never did. But he ran to his son and embraced him. And as the son begins to rehearse his speech, Dad, I'm really sorry. I'm an idiot. And right before he gets to the point where he can say, I will work for you. I will submit myself and do what you need me to do. You know what the father does? He cuts him off and he tells his servants, get the robe. Put it on him. Get the family ring that marks him as having my authority. Put it on him. Get the shoes and put them on him. Which, by the way, that may not seem like a big detail, but in that day, people didn't really have shoes unless you were a member of the household. Unless you were a child of the father. That's when you had shoes. And so what is this father doing? He's wrapping him with all the things that he had rejected and turned away from. He's not only forgiving him. Yes, he forgives him, but he gives him so much more. He gives him the status, the privileges, the honor that comes with being his child. 
And Jesus gives us this picture to show us what God has done for us. Yes, God forgives you, but he does so much more than that. You are his son. You are his daughter. What privileges does a child have in a king's house? All of it. A child is the only one that can interrupt a king's sleep and live to tell about it. You have that privilege. He wraps you more than just forgiveness. He gives to you his righteousness, his perfection, the honor of being his child. You have that. That's what it means to be freely justified. But on the other hand, being freely justified by, by God in Christ is distinct from being morally good. And this is where, like everything I've talked about right now, doesn't really offend us. Maybe the, the whole we fall short thing, but we all know that, so it doesn't really offend us when we're honest with ourselves. But this part really offends us. And if you aren't at least a little bit offended, you aren't really grasping it. Our righteousness, our justification with God is distinct from our moral goodness. See, in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul goes on to say something like this. He says that God justifies or makes right or approves the ungodly. And we don't really use that term anymore, but what Paul is saying is God gives his righteousness to the worst of the worst. The people that you think are the worst people in society are still the ones who who receive this declaration from God because it's not having anything to do with your moral goodness. And when you get this, it's offensive because there's always a little bit of us that thinks, well, yes, we're saved by Jesus and he does the work, but I got to like get myself ready for it. Like I got to prepare my heart and my mind to believe it yeah, like Jesus saves us, but I got to do something with it. I got to show that I'm really sorry, that I'm really repentant, that I really believe. So I got to finish it off. Like Jesus gets me going. He gives me like the grace power, and then I go and finish the job. We think that in our minds, that it has to deal with at least in some small way about what we do. But Paul comes in and says, no, it has nothing to do with what you do. No goodness that you offer gets you anywhere closer to God. And when you get that into your heart and minds, it's offensive. And here's what I found when people begin to grasp it. Here's the number one question I, I get whenever, whenever people really begin to understand, like, I'm made right with God, and I do nothing. Like, there's no amount of goodness. There's nothing I do that, like, tips the scales. You know when people really get it? and I can tell, is because they ask me this question. If that's true, why should I do anything good? If that's true, that I'm made right with God, I get all of this status and privileges of being his child, I get forgiveness and all of it, and I don't do anything to earn it, nothing, and I bring nothing to the table, why do I do anything good? And maybe you've had that question before in your mind, maybe someone has asked you that question. And to be honest, I've struggled with trying to figure out how to respond to that, but I, I heard a pastor once say that, that this is how he responds to it, and I found it helpful. Um, if, if when the threat or the fear of punishment is removed, 
You're freely justified by God in Christ. If that's removed, the fear of having to prove yourself or earn God's love and righteousness, if the fear of that is removed, but at the same time, you lose your motivation to do good for others, what that exposes is you weren't motivated by love. You were motivated by fear. And fear is selfish. See, that's the thing that it exposes in us is we think to ourselves like, well, then why do I do anything good then? What we're motivated by is not for love of others or love of God. We're motivated by fear that it will be punished. And listen, doing good for others, doing good works in God's sight is meant to be done unselfishly. And so here's what that means. The good that you do to show how good you are before God shows how bad you are. If you do good to show God you're doing good, it makes it not good. Tracking? But if you do good because you know you're not good and you know that your goodness is not good in the sight of God, it makes it good. You can laugh, it's okay. C.S. Lewis said that, that nobody could have made this up. Like this is something nobody could have made up other than God himself. But that's what it means. Your moral goodness has nothing to do with your standing before God. Martin Luther wrote uh, in his Heidelberg Disputation, which if you want to grab a beer and talk about the Heidelberg Disputation, let me know. I'm down for that anytime. All right? He said this in his Heidelberg Disputation, kind of outlining what he was teaching about grace and God's mercy. He says this, that the works of the righteous... So people who, who believe in God, who do good works, their works would be mortal sins. In other words, would, would condemn them. Their good works would condemn them if the works would not be feared as mortal sins. You see what he's saying? He's saying if you do good and you think to yourself, I'm doing good, and this is getting me some, some favor with God, your good works are condemning you. But if you do them and recognize these good works get me nowhere closer to God, that's a good work. You're doing them not for yourself. You're doing them because your neighbor needs them. You're doing them not because you fear God's punishment, but because God has loved you. And you respond with, with graciousness and you listen to what he says, not because you need to earn God's love, but because you already have it. That's what it means. That's why it is totally distinct from your moral goodness. And if you think that it gets you closer to God, it actually pushes you further away. I told you it's an offensive thing, but we are freely justified by God through Christ, and it's more than forgiveness, and it has nothing to do with how good you are. So, so let me get to the heart of what Paul is saying, though. The heart of the matter is this. There's two different spiritualities that you can live by. One spirituality is called something spirituality, and another is called nothing spirituality. This is the heart of the matter. You will live by one of those spiritualities, something spirituality or nothing spirituality, and you are going to live by one of them. Which one will you live by? And you're like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> so I know which one I'm living by. Something spirituality is this. There's got to be something I need to do. 
There's got to be something I need to do to, to get closer to God, to, to avoid the bad stuff, to get his favor. There's got to be something. And Jesus says, if you live that way, you know what you get? Nothing. You walk away empty-handed because you're trying to bring something to God. On the other hand, there's a nothing spirituality which says this, Jesus, I have nothing. I have nothing to bring to you. There's nothing I can offer you that is good. And so if I'm going to be right with you, if I'm going to be in a relationship with you, it's got to be all you. It's got to be all your work, all your grace. You come empty-handed. And you know what Jesus says happens then? When you come with nothing, you get everything. He fills your hands. He fills your hearts. He fills your minds. He fills you with his love and his grace. Everything he's earned for you is poured into your life when you come to him with nothing. So here's my invitation to you as your pastor. Stop bringing things to God. Stop bringing something to him thinking that, man, I can show God that that he can love me that I'm good. Instead, come to him with nothing. Come to him empty-handed, admitting, God, I, I got nothing to offer you that's good. And listen to what he says to you when he says, good. Receive everything that Jesus has won for you, and watch what he does in you as he sends you out to love others with that same love. Amen.